Jesus did not come to start a new thing with a brand new people. He came to a broken people. He came to a people in pieces. He came to people with crushed plans. Look in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. We've been going through a series on spiritual warfare here. In the month of May, we talked about the theory and the practice of spiritual warfare for a full month. It was like going to a war college. And now in these next three months, we are going to be talking realistically about the strongholds in our lives. And in the month of June, we are talking about cultural strongholds. Now, let me remind you what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a cavity... In our life, really, it's a layer of Satan. It is, it, it is where, he, where he abides. <clears throat> it is a hole in our lives that can either be culturally inculcated or generationally inculcated or personally inculcated. That when we get frustrated at a certain point in our lives, we relapse or regress into this area of weakness. It seems like a relief, but it is, in fact, a great trap. Now, one of the cultural strongholds that all of us have and that I see in this body and that I see in my own life, but I see in our nation in general, is the stronghold of not wanting to fix what's broken but rather to get onto a new fix. Huey Newton had a song out a few years ago. Uh, I want a new drug. I want a new drug that does for me what you do. One that won't make me feel too bad. Make me feel brand new. See? didn't matter whether or not the situation got fixed. He just wanted to feel better. And that is a tendency that all of us have in our lives and that has been in this culture for a long, long time. In 1830, a French historian, Alexis de Tocqueville, one of the most brilliant cultural analysts that ever lived, came to America and observed the American culture. Stayed here for several years and wrote papers that were later entitled Democracy in America. And even in the year 1830, he said, I notice that the Americans are not no longer organizing around ideals, but they are gathering around their interests. Now think about that just for a minute. An ideal is something that transcends all of us. And it has a certain holding power. It has a certain foundational stability. But our interests are as the morning dew. The gathering around interests produces people unstable in all of their ways. So for at least 160 years, we have had the tendency in this culture to be of flitting and flighting interest rather than firm ideal. Now we come by it honestly, especially in modern times. We are a throwaway society. I'm sure you've heard messages on that. 
It startles me to know, by the way, in the last 30 years we have doubled our production of garbage. Each individual, this is, this is hard for me to believe, but it's a U.S. statistic. Each individual in this nation produces, listen to this, five pounds of garbage per day. That's hard for me to believe, but that's what they say. In any case, we're a throwaway society. We are a people who would rather run to the next thing than repair the thing we have. Um, the mail that you get, according to the U.S. Postal Service, is at this time running at 39% junk mail. Now, some of us get even more. I swear 90% of my stuff is junk mail. But 39% of the mail you get is junk mail, and guess what it's telling you? Got a new drug. Got something for you to buy. Got something for you to be. Got something for you to win. This is how you can get out of the fix that you're in. We are people who are, in some ways, by nature, indecisive. The statistic from those surveyed who are about to get married is that 41% of the people surveyed on the night before their wedding, 41% had serious doubts as to whether or not they were marrying the right person. Six months after they were married, 51%. <laughs> had serious doubts as to whether or not it would last. The encouraging statistic is for those that stuck with it, 91% now rate their marriage as happy. We are a people who would rather run from than repair, who would rather get a new fix than fix. I've been getting letters lately uh, from Christian parents who are very concerned about the intervention of HRS on uh, just on the rumor of abuse or neglect. And I am concerned also. Um, I need to tell you up front that I am very glad that we have a department of HRS. I am very glad that there is a governmental agency concerned in the safety of all of its citizens, including those little kids in a home. And so, therefore, I know that there is intervention necessary many times. And I uh, am not for abolishing HRS. I think it does as good a job as it can under the circumstances. However, according to a recent article that I wrote, or that I read, I'm sorry, I read that the investigations, the experts hired by the government, now estimate that 70% of the kids who were taken out of homes should not be taken out of homes. They are suffering psychological uh, uh, troubles because of being ripped from the family fabric. They have tried something new, some new programs called family preservation programs. And the philosophy here is not to have the knee-jerk response that you will extract that child from the home. The philosophy here in these programs is that you will send help into the home. 
and that you will send the counseling that is needed and the training that is needed and the relief that is needed so that the family can operate in a better way. And in the programs that they have um, piloted so far, 80% of the time, children do not need to be taken from that, from that family. 80% of the time, they save the family. And not only that, but look at this. It costs five, an average of $5,000 per family to do that. If you take a child out of a family and put it into a foster home, that costs $12,000 a year. If you have to institutionalize that child, that costs $50,000 a year. Not only is saving the family better for the family and better for the child, it's cheaper for all of us. You see, our knee-jerk response as Americans is, well, we've got to intervene here and make a whole new situation. No, you don't. You've got to fix what's broken. There is something about us that just wants to rely on everything except for perseverance. You know, look at Luke 11, 5 through 13, and you'll see a parable. We want for God to bring us everything because of our relationship with Him. And indeed, that's why He does give us what He does. is because He has a relationship or He wants a relationship with us. But there's a parable about there, uh, in there about a guy who has a visitor to his home in the middle of the night. Now, in Jewish society, if you have a, a visitor, it is your job to provide hospitality. So this... Visitor comes unexpected. The guy doesn't have anything in his house. He goes to a neighbor's house. He starts knocking on the door in the middle of the night saying, I need bread. And the neighbor responds, Hey, look, my family's asleep. I don't want to get up and crawl over everybody. Don't want to give you bread. But the guy persists. And Jesus says in that parable that because of his persistence, not because of the friendship, But because of the persistence, the guy gets up and gives him anything he needs. God wants to teach us persistence, not just relationship. Not just acclaiming something new. Now, why? Why do we go to the new things of our lives? What are those things in our lives that throw us back to the strongholds that we have of wanting to run away from the problems we have in order to get some sort of fix. Well, one of them is certainly fear. We fear in our relationships, in our commitments, that as we have a little distance on those relationships or commitments, we begin to fear that we won't be able to fulfill them. So why not end it right now instead of going through that whole draggy thing and end it many years hence? Why not save everybody the trouble? And that way, the damage control will have been effective. Look at uh, Exodus 32. Let me show you something about fear. This is a dynamic, just, just like I was talking about. Here are the people who have come out of Egypt into the desert with Moses. Moses says, y'all wait here, I'm going up to the mountain because I think God has something for all of us. But see, there was a time limit in their mind as to how long they were going to wait. Just like in many of our relationships, there's a time limit before we start to think this will never get better. Right? In our jobs, I'm going to give it. You know, we, ne- we may never name the month, but I'm going to give it a few more months to see if this gets better. In our relationships, I'm going to give it a, few, a little bit more time to see if this gets better. 
or just the separation from the ideal that we had in the first place causes discomfort. I, I see that I see that so and so is growing more distant from me. I see that uh, I see that my job, the boss, isn't as close to me as I thought he was going to be. So therefore, I need to do something about it. Look what happens here. First, first verse. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron. Now they'd known Aaron all along. Oh, Aaron was Moses' brother. See. And they said to him, Come and make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Or they. We don't know where he went. And we've got to have the security of the moment. We can't wait. We've got to have somebody telling us what to do. We've got to tell, have somebody telling us, We're not sure we can complete this journey on our own. See what happens? When you get... In an unstable relationship, you begin to think, I'm not sure I can complete this on my own. What does the Bible say? The Bible says it's not your job to complete it. It's your job to be obedient. Look, if uh, Philippians 1.6 says, For I am sure that God will perfect that which He has begun in you. Right? Philippians 2.12 says, <clears throat> Look, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, there is a sense of responsibility in which we need to be obedient. And <clears throat> we need to take very seriously our obedience in relationships. But what's the very next verse after that? For it is God that works in you both to will His good work and way. It is God who works. Now look, it is not your job to make sure you have a successful relationship. It is just your job to be obedient in that relationship. That's your only job. Success or failure is not in your camp. That's God's responsibility. Our responsibility is to do what He said. Right? Absolutely. Therefore, if you're going to abandon a commitment that you've made, you make sure of this. You make sure that you are not abandoning that commitment because you're frustrated or because you're afraid or because you're, you're taking the success of the endeavor onto yourself. You make sure that the only reason you abandon that commitment is because you have had guidance from God to do just that. And let me tell you up front, marriage isn't one of those things that He's going to tell you to abandon. You know, there are a number of things that He has already put in the book that says you never abandon. But, there are several things that God may be leading you to something else, but make sure that the stronghold of getting a new fix isn't the one that's pulling you away. Make sure that you aren't being pulled away because you're afraid, and make sure that you aren't being pulled away because we are greedy. Turn to Second um, Peter. Let me show you a passage in Second Peter. This is talking, the whole second chapter practically talks about people who are unstable in all their ways, as James put it, James put it, the double-minded. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. If you're tempted right now to bolt out of a commitment, and it's a commitment that you made, well, never mind, out of a commitment, no, the Lord knows how to rescue from that you from that temptation to bolt. But on the other side, it says, and to keep the unrighteous. Now, what, are, what is righteousness? Remember that biblical definition. 
Righteousness is meeting the demands of the relationship, right? So therefore, it's very appropriate that that these people call unrighteous because they're not meeting the demands of the relationship and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, first he describes them, especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Oh, golly, I just hate for people to tell me I have to do something. just makes me want to not do it, see? And it makes me desire to do something else. Those are corrupt desires. Therefore, no matter how much God has given us, we desire something else. Good grief, He gave us the garden. We could eat every tree in the garden except one. What did we want? The one. See? He has given us so much in our lives. What do we want? Exactly what we can't have. That's the corrupt desires. Now, watch in verse 14. It describes these people. Having eyes full of adultery. Now, adultery is not just confined in the Bible to men who are married and lust after other women. Adultery is a dynamic of the human personality that always wants something else. The eyes are full of adultery. I know I've got this job, but maybe I could get this job. You know, I know I've got this friend, but maybe I could get this friend. I know I've got this promise, but maybe I could get out of it so that I could do this. See? Those are eyes full of adultery. Now read with me. Never cease from sin. They never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. They have the same effect on other people. Having a heart trained in what? Greed. That's the bottom line right there. Having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children forsaking the right way they have gone astray. Now watch what happens to people. Again, who believe that um, these desires are really going to fulfill them. Look in verse 19. Promising them freedom. The desires promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Get the picture? The paradox of human life is that we think in our fleshly realm that it is commitment that confines us. It is commitment that is limiting us. And we think that the more choices we have, the more options we have, that the freer we are. Think a moment of your own experience. When you could choose anybody in your life to love, were you free? Were you fulfilled? Or were you empty? When you could choose any philosophy of life to believe, were you fulfilled and secure? Or were you empty? When you had any job to pick from. (laughs) I mean, any job. Even the one you just had that you got fired from. Were you secure or were you empty? When do options become emptiness? You understand how this works? The world says that commitment confines. The Bible says... 
that having options can find us. Being governed by our desires enslaves us. That is where we are in bondage. When we don't have the whole picture, F. Lagarde Smith is a good writer. He, he's a law professor at Pepperdine University. And he wrote a book called When Choice Becomes God. It's a book mainly about um, um, abortion, um, but it talks about the general philosophy of our culture. When choice becomes God. And he says something very interesting. He says, when people do not have an overall scheme of things, when they do not have a whole plan of how the world is put together, we are reduced to making ad hoc decisions based upon our interests and upon our comfort level. That is enslavement. Because if we are chasing our interests and chasing our comfort, rather than knowing long-term we're producing something that is stable and helpful, that is enslavement. Well, how do you get out of this? Well, there are two things that you need to remember. First of all, you need to remember that we can stand firm. Look in... uh, and uh, Ephesians 6. Look at how many times it says in the passage that has to do with spiritual warfare. Look at how many times it says to stand firm. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand firm. Look at verse 13 that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Look at verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins, and so on and so forth. So therefore, the one thing we have to learn to do when we are tempted to bolt and run is to stand firm. Very important. Now, how can we stand firm? We can stand firm knowing that our sufficiency is not the question. God's sufficiency is the question. 2 Corinthians 5, 3. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 says, For not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but it is God who is sufficient. It is, it is the Spirit who works. It is He that is sufficient. You understand? So therefore, it is very important that we take up the shield of faith and we resist the darts that come to us and say, yeah, but you could have this. Yeah, but if you abandon this, you can have this. Very important that we make our decisions not on fear, not on greed, but only by the direction of God. If God's moving you and it matches up with the Word, then you can move. Otherwise, look out for the stronghold of getting a new fix. Now, it's important that we come down to the bottom line. And the bottom line is maturity. That's the bottom line. Let me give you a phrase that I want you to remember out of this message. The phrase is, better than new. It comes from, in the old days, we had repairmen. And they said, I will fix your widget as good as new. You know, when I get done with it, it's going to be as good as new. Then, we had, here's the spectrum again, then... We had, with modern-day sales techniques, with rampant consumerism and so on and so forth, we had people who said, why fix it at all? 
for just a few more dollars a month, you can get something brand new. See? And you don't have to fix anything. We, this, this, this is what God wants you to hear. When we're talking about a human life, when we're talking about commitment, fixing or repairing a relationship makes you better than new. We're not talking about a product. We're talking about you. We're talking about me. You know why? Let me give you a couple reasons. Turn to Romans chapter 5. These are character reasons. First of all, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says, But we also exalt in our tribulations. You know, in those things in which our commitments are starting to go awry and we're starting to get scared and it's, it's not pleasant anymore and it requires work from now on. Those are tribulations. Knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. One of the things that God wants you to be able to do is to be strong in tribulation because you have already come through bad times. Satan's work is to intimidate you, to tell you you can't, you're inadequate, you'll never make it, it's going to be miserable and it's going to be like this from now on. It will never get better. But you know what? If you hang tough in a relationship, if you hang tough with a commitment that you've made to God, what's going to happen? Eventually, you're going to come out on the other side of that. And when you come out on the other side, you'll still be intact. You know? You will have picked up the pieces, handed them to God. He's going to hand you back yourself a new person. And you know what? You're not going to be so fearful anymore. Because once you've been traumatized and you've lived through it, it's very difficult to ever get you at the same level of fear again. Because the next thing that happens, what's the first thing you say? A little glimmer of hope speaks out in your heart and says, now wait a minute, you've been through this before, haven't you? You survived, didn't you? Then don't be afraid. Because you and God are going to survive this again. It's a wonderful thing to go through life not intimidated because you've already hung in there and pulled through the tough times. Wonderful thing frustrates the daylights out of Satan. Now let me tell you another thing. Very important to learn. And that is that in your mentality, you begin to learn that freedom comes in the circumstances, not from escaping the circumstances. Your freedom comes in the circumstances, not from escaping the circumstances. Gospel of John, 666, very appropriate uh, uh, verse here. Chapter 6, verse 66. Jesus has, has said some tough things. And verse 666 says, The disciples deserted him. All these people that were following him. He said this, and guess what they started to say to themselves? They started to say, hey, life's too short for this. I don't need this. I don't need. How many times have you said that? I don't need this stuff. I can get grief ever, anywhere. You know, I don't need to hang in here and get grief. I get grief everywhere I go. I'm out of here, Jack. That's what they said. I'm out of here, Jesus. I don't need this stuff. 667 says he turns 
to the twelve. So are you guys going to go too? And the twelve look at him and say, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. They knew that escape was not escape. They knew that commitment was freedom. A long time ago, there was a ship crossing the ocean. I'll close with this, and then we're going to have some prayer time. The ship had as its cargo animals, all of them in cages. And one time when they were cleaning the cages, a door was left ajar and a parakeet flew off that, out of that cage, off the ship into what it thought was glorious freedom. They just watched it disappear over the ocean. Hours and hours later, here comes this bird. <laughs> Tired. Exhausted. Flopped back on that ship. Now, maybe not realizing, but from the analogy you and I can realize, that what looks like freedom is emptiness. There's nothing out there. If you're thinking you can escape what Jesus told you to do, it may feel free for the first few minutes, but you will discover very fast there's nothing out there. It is empty. Only with Christ and the obedience to Christ and the commitment of what He has told us to do is there fulfillment and freedom and joy and rest. Now, I want us to pray because what I've said, the Holy Spirit may have used for you to think about something in your life that A, you have never been committed to because you were afraid it would limit your freedom, or B, you have been committed to, and now you'd like to run like crazy. Somebody, this, I love this phrase. Somebody this, this week was in my office, and they used the phrase, you know, I operate at Mach 1 with my hair on fire. I love that phrase. That's just how, that's, that's how you'd like to go right now, Mach 1 with my hair on fire. I just like to get out, you know, because it looks like too much work. It doesn't look like it's going to work. Or there may be some of you who aren't sure what God wants you to do. And you'd really like to pray with somebody about that. First, let me get some folks up here to pray with. Elders, come on up. Let me see how many we've got in the service. Just a couple in the service. Pete and Louise, would you pray with folks on that side? I'd appreciate it. And uh, um, David, would you and Bill just stand up? And Marcia, you too, just stand up. And John and Dolly, would you guys come up and pray with folks up here? Now what, and Marcia over there. What I'd like for these folks to do is just to um, stand there. And if you need them, anybody standing, facing the altar is somebody that you can pray with. All right? And they will just pray with you about your agenda. Those of you who would like to come and pray just by yourselves, please do feel free to come up and kneel down. Now let me make two suggestions even as you do that. Number one, if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, let me urge you to do that today. That is the only freedom that you'll ever really find in this world. I know there are probably some folks here who have 
not done that because they didn't want to limit themselves. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be, just be narrow in my religious outlook. Or I don't want to be, I don't want, you know, Jesus said, golly, uh, except through me, nobody comes to the Father. That seems awful narrow. It is very narrow. It is very narrow. But it's the door to freedom. And it's an invitation. And I'd love for you to be able to pray with somebody about that this morning. Secondly, if you need somebody to agree that you can last out the commitment you have, come up. Let somebody agree with you. And thirdly, if you want someone to just say, you know, would you pray that God will show me in no uncertain terms what he wants me to do in this situation? Then use one of the folks up here. Otherwise, just come and, and pray and give it to God. All right? Let's take a few minutes to do that, and then uh, Rick will close us with a song. Come and pray.